My name is Jacqueline Suzanne Jameson. I'm here today to stand as the victim and biological mother. Just before noon on Memorial Day, Monday, May 26, 2014, I was settling in to the sand on a warm beach blanket celebrating the day. That day, a group of 14 friends paddled out across the Martin County Inlet to a remote beach island in a line of kayaks. I noticed that at some point on the paddle out, there was no cell phone service. So I didn't pay attention to the phone much until we reached the beach. It wasn't until I was about to settle in that I remembered that I hadn't checked my phone in a while. The children were with Kimberly. They were there to have a visitation that was scheduled for that day. When I glanced down, I realized my phone was ringing, but the volume wasn't turned on, so I didn't hear it. I quickly answered it, not recognizing the number. On the other end of the phone was a frantic voice yelling and screaming, she's dead, she's dead, your baby is dead. Jackie, where are you? I didn't know who this person was on the other end of the phone. It turns out that it was a neighbor. Just this lady just saying, your baby, your baby, she drowned, she's dead and you have to get home now. This is the call that no parent ever wants to get when picking up the phone. I handed my phone off to a friend and I dropped to my knees, paralyzed by the words I had just heard. After what felt like hours, I was quickly escorted off the beach and and onto the kayak where we paddled back. The only thing I remember about getting off the beach that day is that my flesh, the flesh on my feet burned like I was stepping on hot coals. Upon entering the kayak, Jennifer would keep me from falling out of the water, falling out and into the water. Shock had already set in and my body was attempting to shut down. The next thing I knew was that I was pulled aboard a patrol boat in the river and the giant ropes rubbed a giant burn into my legs and I began to bleed. I could hear the men talking. I could tell we were moving, but I couldn't feel the wind on my face or the bleeding wound on my legs. As we drove to the hospital, I remember saying to Jen, God, all I knew was that this woman was yelling, your baby's dead over and over again. As we drove to Jupiter Medical Center, it was apparent that something was awfully wrong. Every parent knows when something isn't right with their child, even when they aren't near them. Upon arriving at the hospital, we were promptly escorted into a small back room of the ER, passing by Jupiter Police Department, which lined the hallways. Inside the small room, an officer waited for us and closed the door behind us. I had no idea what was about to happen or how it would forever change my life. I could feel my heart beating in my body and I couldn't breathe and wanted to answer, but I couldn't bring myself to speak either. I was paralyzed. The officer rattled off a bunch of numbers to Jennifer, who happened to be a 911 dispatcher for 27 years. As she began to cry, I asked, what, what is it? They sat me down and from this moment on, my reality and my world shifted forever. It has never been the same and it will never be the same. I was told that my daughter was indeed dead, that she murdered, she was murdered and she was drowned to death by Kimberly. My son was being treated for an overdose of unprescribed medication and Xanax and that the defendant, the child's other mother, had attempted to commit suicide. More than three years after that tragic day, 
on September 26, 2017. Jackie Jamison told her story to a court in West Palm Beach, Florida. Her former partner, Kimberly Lucas, the children's other mother, had pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and attempted first-degree murder and had agreed to a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Jackie and others were given the opportunity to make victim impact statements. As she continued her story, she described sitting in the hospital and comforting her 10-year-old son, who survived but was still suffering from the effects of the overdose. His pupils were the size of saucers and he didn't recognize me at first. It took him a while to comprehend what was happening. Once he realized it was me, he began to cry. As I held him, I felt the overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. I was then escorted back to the same small room to be interviewed by the police for what seemed like hours and hours, not believing what was being said to me. This is a defining moment in time for me because when you bring a child into the world, you just never know, you never expect to have to say goodbye to them as well. I'm Donna Anderson, and this is True Love Fraud Stories. Jackie Jamison grew up in South Florida. When she graduated from high school, she wanted to go to college far away, primarily to escape her stepfather, who emotionally, physically, and sexually abused her. She chose Moorhead State University in Kentucky. After two semesters at Moorhead, Jackie started to experience depression and suicide ideation, all the result of the abuse that she had endured at home. Her counselors sent her to a support group for incest survivors. And that is where I met Kimberly. Uh, And we became pretty fast friends, I would say. Um, She was very engaging with me and almost immediately kind of took me under her wing um, and started to kind of take care of me. Um, I went to college basically with nothing, right? So um, I was struggling with even providing myself meals and getting the things I needed for, for winter and, and so forth. And so she was quick to take care of me. So that's kind of how we met and kind of our relationship started as friends. Jackie was a busy college student. She was studying music, had a boyfriend, and was working as a resident advisor, so she had her own room. She would sneak her way in to that to my room and um, leave me sort of my favorite candies. She would do my laundry for me. She would it was it was so doting that it was uncomfortable for me. Um, I was a very independent kind of person and kind of private and for her to kind of um every day a card under my door like a hallmark card of some sort and um I told her that I was uncomfortable with that and um I was dating this this guy and it was like every time I went somewhere with him she would have a um like a meltdown of some sorts, like she would say her dad was there or something happened and I would feel bad. And then I would go and spend more time with her. And the more time we spent together, the closer we got and things just kind of happened. Like, you know, then we started having more intimacy when we were together. Um, it wasn't like she forced me or anything like that. It was kind of like a, a natural, I think, progression. We both mostly felt safe with each other. Um, But as time went on, I felt a little bit obligated, you know, to not spend time with this boyfriend. And, um, you know, one thing turned into another and I ended up, you know, breaking up with him and coming out as gay. 
Jackie was about to graduate from the music program when she decided to stay in college and study psychology as well. The following year, she and Kimberly both graduated with degrees in psychology. Jackie returned to Florida, and Kim came with her. They both got jobs in the mental health field. Kim had a talent for moving up in the workplace, and whenever she got a new job, she brought Jackie along with her. We were very enmeshed. We were unhealthily enmeshed, and we did everything together. Um, The only thing is, once we moved here and we got our own apartment and we started working and we were sort of living the, the adult life, Um, we started to have problems pretty much right away because of sex. So I very much was not the sexual type. She was, I would say, overly sexualized. Um, And so that was a problem. We started going to therapy to talk about that. And um, it was just always a problem. And it was early on that she started seeking out you know, emotional attention and even physical attention from other women. And then I found out about it. And then, of course, she would lie. And we went through that a couple times. And then I cheated on her. And so we there were some indiscretions early on in our 20s. At the time, Jackie felt like the problems were all her fault. Now she realizes that she was dealing with PTSD from her childhood abuse. Looking back, like after everything happened um, with my daughter. And I can look at it from a different perspective and fresh eyes now, the signs were there from the very beginning, you know? Just the, the charm, the manipulation, the lies, um, just really doing anything she could to identify with my story, to make me feel important. Um, and then there was like always this covert possessiveness that I couldn't really put my you couldn't really wasn't palpable but I felt it and I knew it was there but I accepted it and it almost because I never had that kind of emotional care really as a child it made me feel important right so I thrived on that almost in a way it's it's kind of it's kind of sick to think about it like that now but but I did Jackie always wanted to have children after she and Kimberly were together for about 10 years they decided to start a family but first Jackie wanted their relationship to be official so we had a, a civil union at our local LGBTQ church and we had over a hundred people attend and it was just like any other really wedding or ceremony, I guess you would say. Um, and then after that, um, started to, to make a family. They selected a donor and Jackie went through fertility treatments. It took three years, but in 2003, her son, Ethan was born. Jackie was thrilled but Kimberly, not so much. There was really a disconnect in our relationship at that point because then I wasn't giving her the attention that she, A, was used to, and B, that she wanted or or needed, I guess. Um, And so there was, you know, some sort of disputes around that. Then Kim had gastric bypass surgery, which led to medical problems and prescription pain medication. This was on top of her existing mental health issues, including alcoholism. Jackie was struggling to deal with Kim's medical and emotional needs, so they decided to move to Virginia, where Kim's family lived, for assistance. I really didn't want to go to, her, to Virginia with her. I wanted to, I wanted to leave her when Ethan was about three or four. That's um, just tough, you know. Like I didn't didn't feel like I really had anywhere else to go. Um, she was family. Her family was my family. It was just one of those things. And despite all of her, her lies and um, different things that she, you know, manipulated about and her addictions and things like that, I just felt like it was the right thing to stay together. Still, Jackie wanted another child. At age 39, she pursued having a child through a clinical trial 
and her daughter Eliana was born on November 10, 2011. Although Kim had developed a close relationship with Ethan, it just wasn't the same with the new little girl. With Eliana, um, you know, Kim never really bonded with her. And when she was right around one years old, um, Kim and I had, we were fighting quite a bit at this point. And um, I said to her, you know, I don't, I don't know kind of like what her problem was or whatever, um, something to that, to that fact. And she said, well, I resent her because I resent you for having her. And I never wanted kids and I never wanted this and I never wanted that. um, You know, uh, you just do what you want and how you want, you know. So we went down that, that road. That was the one and only time that there was any indication that, you know, she felt that strongly about Ellie. Jackie was shocked and heartbroken. I cried and I I just said, how can you not love this little innocent baby? You know, how can you not be a part of, you know, loving her and raising her as, you know, as your own and as Ethan's sister and sibling. And we've been together this long. And she went with me to New York City the day that we had the in vitro. I mean, we had to sign all the papers together. It's not like I, you know, um, sprung it on her that I was pregnant or anything like that. But um, I later found out that through my son, that she all along was telling him things like, mommy doesn't love us the way she loves Ellie. She doesn't love you the way she loves Ellie. You'll never be as important to her as Ellie is. I, I, you know, you're my favorite. And there was a lot of, you know, manipulating going on in the background with my son and her that I didn't find out until after um, Memorial Day 2014 when she, when she drowned Ellie. What led to that irreversible crime? After many years of arguing with Kim about her lying, pill use, and not taking responsibility for the children, Jackie finally wanted to leave the relationship. I had just had enough. And um, really, the straw that broke the camel's back was we had moved back here to Florida, um, and we went to a Christmas party with a bunch of our friends. And we're all just sitting around having, you know, drinks and talking. And she was talking to another person and she was saying, yeah, well, this, this person she was talking to has had a history of having cancer and had cancer treatments and chemo. And Kimberly went on to say, yeah, I understand that. I have too. I had cancer back, you know, a few years ago when I was at this hospital and this and that. Well, none of that was true. None of it. And so I looked over at her and I kind of nudged her with my elbow and I said, what are you doing? I said, we need to go. Now we could walk home from where we were. It was in our neighborhood. All of, you know, our girlfriends lived in our neighborhood. So we were walking home and I said, you know, what the hell was that? What are you doing? And she's like, well, I thought that if I could connect with her and, you know, she thought that she could connect with me, then I could maybe get a job there. I said, you have a job. And then what are you going to do? You're going to get a job at the oncology center. And then what continue your lie or. So then when we got home, she said, I have some more to tell you. And I said, okay. And she said, you promise you can't tell my mom, you can't tell my therapist, you can't tell our therapist. And I said, no, I'm not going to promise you anything anymore. And um, the kids were in bed. And she went on to tell me that she had made up this huge, extravagant lie to our longtime therapist about a man that she was supposedly dating who lived in Palm Beach whose name was Nicholas, 
who was very wealthy and he was supposed to be paying for her three time a week therapy sessions so that she could feel better and not be depressed and et cetera, et cetera. And her and I weren't doing well. We were actually talking about separating at this point. And it was all made up. It was all a lie. Her, the other, there was another woman that she had started, not started, that they had a history of sort of having some emotional affairs and her name was Nicola. So basically what she had done was created in this fake entity, Nicholas, um, representing this rich person who was paying for all of her therapy sessions. And she created an email address and she was emailing the therapist, acting like she was Nicholas, back and forth and back and forth. And so she's telling me all of this and I'm freaking out. Um, and I said, I, I, I can't, I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to call your mom and she needs to come here and you need to be honest with her and you need to be honest with the therapist tomorrow. And like, I'm done. This is, I've drawn the line in the sand. You have to get, you know, you have to get help. After the Christmas incident, Kim went into treatment in Tennessee and Jackie left with the kids. Kim visited the children for a few days in March and then went to stay with her mother. She returned for Memorial Day, the one day that Jackie agreed to give Kim visitation with the children alone. I had no reason to be concerned. She seemed okay. She'd never made any you know, overt threats or anything about hurting the children. She'd only you know, said stuff about herself in the past. So I never really had any, you know, clue or indication that she would do anything like this. But uh, I dropped the kids off with her and she was supposed to take them to the zoo and the beach. And I left with a group of my friends and we went out kayaking on a remote beach island. And as soon as we hit land, I got a phone call from the neighbor that I needed to come home because my daughter was dead. Jackie's friends paddled her in a kayak out to the river. The Coast Guard picked them up and took them to their car. Jackie's friends drove her directly to the hospital. There, Jackie learned that her partner, Kimberly, had attempted to kill both of their children and succeeded in killing Eliana. Jackie was devastated. In her victim impact statement to the court three years later, she described saying goodbye to her little girl at the hospital. Little face, and I told her that I loved her. Now she had tubes coming out of her mouth and her nose was sealed with mucus. Her body was limp and cool. She was still soft to the touch, but so quiet and so beautiful. In the moment I saw her, I dropped to the floor in a gut-wrenching sob. My legs gave way. I could not believe what I was seeing in front of me. How could this be my baby, my little girl? How could she really be gone? I sat next to her, caressing her hair for the very last time ever. Telling her that mommy loved her forever and ever, and that I was so sorry for what happened. Still not knowing the extent of the investigation. And what I thought was the hardest moment of my life, seeing my baby lying there lifeless, taken at the hands of her other mother out of a fit of rage or jealousy. It wasn't until later that Jackie learned more about what had transpired on that terrible day. Kimberly had drowned my daughter to death and that um, she tried to overdose both children using Xanax and caffeine. Um, but my, I guess my daughter wouldn't drink the drink. And, um, and so she took her in to the bathroom. The way my, my son really was the only witness. And so like he was 10 at the time. And what basically what he said was, 
um, she was giving him his favorite sodas and coffee and all of that. And she said, he said, oh, this tastes funny. And she said, well, I put medicine in it to make you big and strong because that was one of his things. He wanted to be big and strong. And so he drank it and he, the last thing he remembers was my, um, was Kim taking Ellie into the bathroom. And then he kind of woke up a little bit and he remembered Kim coming out of the bathroom and then he fell back asleep. So he didn't wake up. I think from what they said, it might've been like hours later and he couldn't, he couldn't uh, wake Kim up and he couldn't find Ellie. So he remembered that Kim was taking Ellie into the bathroom. And so the bathroom door was actually locked at this point. So he went and got a butter knife. You could open it like with a little, you know, the little slat or whatever. And he opened it and he pulled her out of the bathtub and did his version of CPR. And um, he went and found his cell phone. I guess she had kind of hidden all that. He went and found his cell phone, called 911, put a robe on because he was in his underwear and went outside and was calling for the neighbors and that's how the um, fire rescue and the police and everyone was able to get to the house. And that's, that's how they found out. We'll be right back. Ethan recovered enough to go home with his mother that evening, but then Jackie started slipping into shock, and her friends took her to the hospital. In addition to the terrible loss of her daughter, Jackie was afraid that the authorities would say she hadn't protected her son and take Ethan away. That didn't happen. Still, Jackie was in agony. In court, she described her pain. Gone forever, stolen, taken away. For what? In the name of love, this earth instantly and forever changed me and has forever changed her brother, my son. Losing a child, I have learned is the most intense physical and emotional pain I have ever felt in my life. The moment I saw her lifeless body, a part of me also died. In the beginning, I cried nearly every day, almost all day. I spent many nights in front of the toilet hoping I wouldn't throw up. It took every ounce of fiber in me to sit up from bed each morning and just put one foot in front of the other, just to make it to the next room. Then brushing my teeth and finally trying to force food down. It seemed like the world was slipping by me in a vacuum. When she went out, Jackie said, she found herself following families with little girls who looked like Eliana. I cringe at the sounds of sirens, the hair strands on my neck when I drive past the apartment complex that she died in. I'm thrown back into horror when I see crime tape, or I have to even think about going to the emergency room when I I can still smell her on her blanket that I sleep with every night, and now she visits me in my dreams. Jackie's longtime partner, Kimberly, recovered from her suicide attempt. After spending 48 hours in the hospital, she was charged and transported to the county jail. According to the arrest report, when police officers arrived at the scene, they noticed a computer monitor sitting in plain view on the kitchen table with a Word document open. She left the suicide note she said it was a note of jealousy. Basically, she said, you fucking did this to yourself. Go be with all your friends and your buddies. Have a great life without us. Enjoy, basically. Yeah, like, fuck you. <laughs> Based on the suicide note, detectives determined that there was probable cause to believe that Kimberly's actions were intentional and premeditated. On June 14, 2014, a grand jury indicted Kimberly Lucas for first-degree murder, 
attempted first-degree murder, and child abuse. First-degree murder was a capital crime, and 10 days later, the Florida state attorney notified the court that they intended to seek the death penalty. Jackie had no say in their decision. Why had this happened? Were there red flags early in her relationship that pointed to betrayals later on? Yes, but at the time, Jackie didn't recognize them. So very early on in college, the things I ignored were definitely the the overwhelming amount of attention and charm, um, stalking behavior. So... I would be walking through my dorm doing what I do as a resident advisor. She would call me. This was like right when cell phones came out. (laughs) And um, she would call me and tell me what I was wearing. And her dorm was half a mile away, right? And I would say, how do you know what I'm wearing? And she would say, I've got my binoculars. I'm on the balcony. Now, I couldn't see her. She could see me. Um, I also found out that she would skip class and sit in the library just to wait for me to walk by to class and then wait for me to walk back up campus. Um, so there was a lot of sort of like, yeah, the stalking behavior. Kim always told Jackie that her father sexually assaulted her. That's why she was in the incest survivors group where Jackie met her. But now, Jackie thinks the stories may have been manipulation. I believe in the lies about things that she said that her dad did to her in an attempt for me to feel sorry for her and to not be with my other friends or not be with my boyfriend at the time, but instead be with her. Um, And I had that sort of gut instinct to then that she wasn't telling the truth, but I you know, always chose to, like, ignore that sort of gut feeling. So why didn't Jackie question Kim's behavior? I think it was more about self-doubt on my part. You know, like, I didn't believe in myself and my intuition and my gut enough to not think that it was something, you know, like, but maybe I was making it up. Maybe it was just me. Maybe I I just didn't believe in myself. I didn't, I didn't believe in what, what I was thinking. And also, you know, I'd never been around anything like, like this with another person. I'm obviously I went through my own incest issues, but you know, some of the things that she was doing and saying also were providing me sort of a safe place, right? My Nobody in my family was helping to support me through college. I was putting myself through school and she was giving me the things that nobody else was. Years later, Jackie started to notice weirdness in interactions with people who knew both her and Kim. Anytime we would have friends that were both of our friends or if There was somebody that she sort of got that she was close with, say a work buddy or someone like that. Um, Everything would be fine in the beginning, like their relationship with her and their relationship with me, and they would be nice. But then all of a sudden it would be like, they would start to not talk to me or act like there was a problem. And this happened on multiple occasions. So after this happened, I went back and spoke to some of those people And they said she was saying things about me that I know she was doing. So she was telling them lies about me, but really she was telling her story. And so then basically what it was doing was putting everyone in her corner. And then I had really no friends, right? Um, I mean, I had my own friends, but like these people thought that I was this horrible person. After Kim was arrested, she claimed that she didn't remember anything from Memorial Day 2014 
and never would have done anything to hurt her children. She started to blame her behavior on multiple personalities. Jackie was a mental health professional, lived with Kim for 20 years, and never saw a hint of multiple personalities. But looking back, Jackie can now see that Kim exhibited signs of malingering, depression, antisocial behavior, and personality issues. Kim's mother told Jackie that Kim lied since she was a little kid and stole people's credit cards and money, but then said she didn't remember doing it. There's a part of me, honestly, that wants to go and sit in front of her and just see what I can see and read what I can read, but she's so good at manipulating a line, I would have no idea. And what good is it going to do anyways, right? For more than three years, Florida's death penalty law was in limbo, and Kimberly's trial kept getting postponed. Finally, prosecutors asked Jackie if she would accept a guilty plea from Kimberly and a sentence of life with no chance of parole. I said, of course. I was trying to avoid trial because I didn't want to put myself, my son, or anyone else for that matter through trial, right? Um, And I didn't want to have to go through appeal after appeal after appeal. So I, I was fine with that. Instead of a trial, on September 27th, 2017, there was a sentencing hearing in the case of State versus Kimberly Lucas. The judge made sure Kimberly understood what she was agreeing to with her guilty plea. Then, multiple people made victim impact statements. Some of Kimberly's friends spoke on her behalf. Kim's mother said that she tried to get help for her daughter's mental illness for 35 years. Reverend Leah Brown, the church pastor, spoke of her own grief the anguish of the congregation, and her firm belief that with a lifetime in prison, God would offer Kim what she needed to find healing. Whether Kim chose to accept what was offered, Reverend Brown said, was up to her. For Jackie, her faith and church helped her to deal with the tragedy. Here's what she said at the court hearing. three years have been wrought with heartache, displacement, sadness, addiction, and depression. But they have also been some of the most spiritual and defining moments of my life. Enduring this loss has taught me that I have an ability to push through just about anything. I am resilient. I am loved. I am worth being treated with respect, dignity, and truth. I have learned that my feelings matter, and most of all, my safety and my son's safety matters. To Kimberly, she not only stole from me, she stole from each and every person here today. She stole from her family. She stole a daughter, a sister, and a niece. She stole from family and friends, all in the name of jealousy and retaliation. I have learned truths about the 20-year relationship that I was a part of, that it had many betrayals, and I am learning to accept those betrayals with dignity and grace. I've learned that no one can take away my pain of the loss of my child except God, and that forgiveness is the key to peace. Most of all, I've learned that there are good people in the world who do love and care and are worth my trust, and a good majority of them are here with me today. My family, friends, and my community have stuck by me and my son from day one and have never left my side, not once. And for that, I am blessed and we are grateful. All of this brings me to justice. This has really caused me to question what is justice. What kind of justice would be enough for premeditated murder of a child, your very own child? The only thing I keep coming up with is justice for me is peace, 
and peace is knowing that my son and I will never have to look over our shoulder again as long as we live. So justice, Your Honor, I admittedly never knew much about our justice system. I have since become quite knowledgeable and have learned and formed the opinion that our judicial system is flawed by laws that are antiquated at best. The law is set up to provide those that commit crimes innocence until proven guilty, which causes years and years of undue stress, delays, and appeals, which forces survivors to endure a lifetime of continued unnecessary suffering. Therefore, given the crime and my son and I's desire to need to have closure on this case, we are in full support of the plea being presented here today of life without parole. Today, I'd like to say that I replace our loss and grief with healing, hate with light and love, and anger with compassion. I choose to focus my thoughts, my feelings, and life on what is good and pure and what is right. We rise above this day and our love and light intact stronger now more than ever. Your Honor, thank you for this time. Thank you for your commitment to this case. Thank you, Terry and Reed, for their support and commitment and advocacy. I'd like to thank my family and my friends and the community for your undying love and support the last three years and never leaving our side. May God bless this process. May we all continue to find peace and forgiveness. And may my son be able to leave this place today with a renewed sense of life and purpose, finding his path beyond the definition of a victim. God bless you. Jackie hasn't seen Kimberly since that court hearing nine years ago. How does she feel now about what happened? I still have guilt. I mean, you know, I, I, I have guilt that I am a licensed clinical psychotherapist that I missed. I didn't miss. I did not listen to my gut, my intuition. I didn't stop. And, and I wasn't present enough to protect my children from somebody that I think I knew deep down wasn't, I, I didn't think leaving them her, with her that day that anything bad was going to happen. Obviously, I would have never left them. But I, I think there was always a part of me that questioned, like, if she was capable of ever snapping. Jackie notes that there are people who cannot deal with the breakup of a family. In their mind, if they can't have their partner and the kids, nobody can have them. What would I do different? I mean, I think I would have really listen to my gut. Although I don't know, it was really difficult. I mean, her mom would call me and, and, and get upset with me and yell at me and make me feel guilty for leaving her because she was so upset. You know, I really felt like I was stuck between a rock and a hard place because I was being made out to be the bad guy by leaving. Jackie couldn't quite identify the pressure she was feeling. Now she realizes that both Kim and her mother engaged in coercive control. So it was years of that, right? And it's so subtle that you almost can't quite put your finger on it, but it's there. And there's always this underlying fear of if I leave, then what? Like, is it going to make my life more of a living hell, right? So why not just stay and try and make things okay to avoid the conflict? 
I mean, I think that's the bottom line. That's why I stayed. Jackie still misses her daughter, Eliana, but recognizes that now all she can do is live her life. A lot of people talk about forgiveness and moving forward, and that's the only way to move forward. And, you know, I try not to live in hate. I try not to blame myself for staying with her for so long. Um, in hindsight's 2020, right? All we can do is learn and try not to get in those kind of situations and relationships again. I'm happy to say that I'm with a very loving, beautiful partner now who is the exact opposite of a narcissist, like the furthest the thing you could get. <laughs> um, and there's no lying and no manipulating. And she's just a really, you know, honest and loyal human being. Jackie believes it's important for her to talk about her experience. She now understands that this extreme violence happens more often than people realize, and the perpetrators can be quiet and covert. Here I am, a trained therapist living with another trained therapist, missing the cues because it's not something that I worked with. You know what I mean? It's not... I always thought it was me. I thought it was my own abuse. I thought it was my own triggers. I, I, it was always just my fault. It was something that I wasn't doing right. And it, I just think those subtle, the subtleness can be missed. And before you know it, you're in a situation where somebody's going to end up hurt or dead. Um, and so I know there's a lot of information out there now on narcissism and gaslighting and um, sociopathy and all of that, but I think really taking a moment to ask yourself if you're really in an unhealthy relationship where you don't feel safe to, to talk to someone, right? And, and at least get a second opinion. I have people come to me now and they say, you know, I know you've been through some stuff. I think, I don't know, I've, I'm, I'm, I've got this person in my life and tell me what you think. I, think. I think that's really important. I never did that with her. I never told anyone else how I really felt about what was going on in my relationship with her. I'm Donna Anderson, and this is True Love Fraud Stories. To hear expert commentary related to this story, please become a premium subscriber. I interview Dr. Denise McDermott, an adult and child psychiatrist who talks about transmuting unbelievable tragedy into recovery. You'll also get access to my weekly interactive podcast, Love Fraud Live, where I answer your questions. In one of the articles that I read, you were quoted as saying that you felt some of the most spiritual and defining moments of your life as a result of this. What did you mean by that? I think I really just connected with the spirit world in a way that I knew existed before because I sort of I've always been really sensitive to to I think that part of of spirit. Um, but I really, and I don't know if this is just me trying to rationalize, you know, my grief or make myself feel better, but there's a part of me that feels like Ellie chose to come here to save me and my son from this evil thing, you know, from this evil person, from this relationship so that we could have a better life. And she was that kind of human being. She was that kind of soul. You could see it in her eyes. You could, 
And I knew from the minute she was born, there was always this sort of voice in my head. Don't take it for granted. Don't take the time for granted. Take the pictures now. Don't take the time for granted. She's not going to be like from the minute she was born. This is what I heard. This was my message. Now, you know, you got to ask yourself, is this because she's your child? You know, do, do all parents feel this way? I didn't feel that way with my son. I still don't. Um, it was just different with her. And I don't know. I just, um, I, I had dreams. I had a dream one night after she died. I kept hearing a, of a Bible verse that, you know, and I'm not, I, I went to church, but I'm not a Bible you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I didn't memorize verses or anything like that. And it was just this voice over and over and over. And it, it was, um, I believe it was Matthew 26, 13. And when I looked it up the next morning, it said something about in her honor, um, her story will be told. Love Fraud Stories is produced by lovefraud.com. I'm the author of lovefraud.com and the researcher for this story. Engineering is by Terry Kelly. To learn how to recognize and recover from everyday sociopaths, visit lovefraud.com. And for more information about this story, other great stories, or if you'd like to share your story, visit podcasts.com dot lovefraud.com.